Uh, Our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, and then 18 through 26. As Jesus continued on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. As Jesus sat down to eat in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy, not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. While Jesus was speaking to them, a ruler came and knelt in front of him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and place your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. Then a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the hem of his clothes. She thought, If only I touch his robe, I will be healed. When Jesus turned and saw her, he said, Be encouraged, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that time on. When Jesus went to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the distressed crowd. He said, go away because this little girl isn't dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. After he had sent the crowd away, Jesus went in and touched her hand and the little girl rose up. News about this spread throughout the whole region. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our story starts like many stories start in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus is going along the way with his disciples. He's walking along. Um, If we were to characterize Jesus' ministry in just a few words, walking, eating, teaching, preaching, that's pretty much it. In the three years that Jesus was, was kind of on, on the earth at, at before his passion, his crucifixion, resurrection, that's what Jesus did. He walked a lot. He ate with a lot of people. He taught a lot. He healed a lot. I forgot to mention that. That's what Jesus did. He talked, and this was Jesus embodying the coming kingdom of God. But as Jesus was walking along on this particular day, we're not sure where they are, probably in Galilee somewhere. Jesus is walking along, going through the city center, and he sees a tax collector sitting at at his booth. Now, there are a lot of taxes uh, in the first century. Um, Rome levied quite a few taxes. Uh, Israel levied taxes. There were taxes coming and there were taxes going. It's not unlike now in today's age. Uh, The people who collected taxes were not considered um, good people in the ancient world. Now, we may not like the tax man, so to speak, but we don't call them all bad people. But but in the first century and and in a Jewish context, uh, they saw tax collectors as as not good people, as bad people. Um, They were thought to be thieves. Many of them were thought to be thieves. They could skim off the top. Whatever they could bring in and stuff in their pockets was okay. But they were also considered colluders with the Roman government, right? So, so if, if you're, you're Jewish, if you're a, a member of, of Israel, so to speak, and, and, and Rome comes in and conquers your nation, it's, a, it's an overlord state, and they impose taxes, right? You don't like that. And then when people from your own faith and your own people go and they collect taxes on behalf of the occupying army, right? It doesn't bring up good memories. It doesn't bring up good thoughts, 
in general, people just didn't like tax collectors. And in general, people didn't think tax collectors were good people. They were unholy. They were unclean. And they did the wrong things and, and, and worked with the wrong people. They, they just weren't in, so to speak. And so as Jesus passes this tax booth, you, you expect, if this is the movie of our lives, right? It's a boo hiss. It's the, the sinister music. It's the imperial march, right? Um, tax people aren't shown as good. But Jesus does something, as Jesus often does, unusual and strange and out of character for most of the religious teachers of his day. Jesus walks by the booth. He looks at Matthew sitting there. And he says, follow me. And at this point, we're not surprised, but it is unusual that that Matthew just gets up and follows Jesus, right? I mean, again, think of this scene in your mind of how unusual this would be and how odd this would be that, that Matthew is sitting there. He's got, you know, the Roman taxes out in front of him. He's got, I think, yeah, he's got a little abacus counting there, right? He's counting. He's got piles of money all around him. Jesus says, follow me. And he just sort of gets up and leaves it all and follows Jesus. Now, now you got to wonder how this is kind of going over with the rest of Jesus' disciples. I won't get into it too much because it's next week, but there is a list of Jesus' disciples that's coming up in just the next chapters of this, of this story. And, and guess what's on that list? Simon the Zealot. Now, we don't know a whole lot about what Zealot meant kind of in that first third of the first century context meant, but, but, but zealots were generally people who were very, very religiously elite and righteous and just gung-ho. And so a zealot would not get along very well with a tax collector, right? It just, they didn't mix. Zealots would be very, very zealous against tax collectors on behalf of Rome. And so Jesus is beginning to, to build for himself this group of people who are very, very different from one another. And very unusual assortment of disciples, Jesus has called to himself. But as Jesus does in his ministry, if part of his ministry is walking, another part of his ministry is eating. And so the next thing Jesus does, right? He, he calls Matthew and, and Matthew says, why don't you come over and have dinner with me? I'll get a group together. We'll have a dinner. I'll introduce you to all my friends. Hey, that's nice. Jesus is kind of getting in with people. We think that's good. Well, as Jesus is sitting down and eating with, with, with these folks that Matthew has collected around him, we are told that they are tax collectors and sinners. And we're also told that there are other people watching. Dinners were strange in the first century. They were kind of private. They were kind of public. Lots of people were around and could observe them. So, so, so we're told that Pharisees were observing Jesus and who he was eating with. Because Jesus just didn't... He didn't eat with the right company in general, and this is just a bridge too far, and they're grumpy about it. Right, right? The, 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 the folks in this, the, the religious elites are looking at Jesus going, and they're a little grumpy, like, why is he eating with those people? I, I can't even think of a contemporary, like, an analogous situation in which this was happened, perhaps, like, I don't know if one of you came into a bar and saw me sitting down with a bunch of people who were drinking together and carousing together. And you maybe knew their reputation and thought, what is pastor doing with them? Like, how does he know them? I don't know. That might be a contemporary, like analogous situation where, where you find someone you deeply respect in the company of people who are, you know, questionable. Who you or society or whoever may look at and go, eh, they're not the best people. 
Right? I don't know, maybe if I'm in a mob meeting. I don't know. Like, I, again, it, the, the analogy escapes me at this moment, but, it, but, but the, these, these folks are looking in on what Jesus is doing, and he's just with the wrong people. Tax collectors and sinners. Right? So, so you look around the table, you see Jesus, and he's unconcerned. But you got tax collectors, you got sinners, you got people of ill repute, right? All around Jesus. And the Pharisees are concerned. Now, we're not told if they're mad, angry. I mean, they come off as grumpy, but I think that sometimes might be projection, that what we project on them. I'm not entirely sure in this text. But the Pharisees do something strange. Instead of going to Jesus, sometimes they go to Jesus. But this time, they, you know, imagine like they're, they're like, Peter, come over here, right? And they're sitting with Peter and maybe John, and they're going, why, why does your teacher eat with those people? with tax collectors and sinners. It was a common belief that who you ate with were the people you shared values and morals with. And so you wanted to, holy people ate with holy people. Sinners ate with sinners. And they didn't mix much. And and especially for Jesus, who was a teacher of the law, who, who taught about the coming kingdom of God, who taught about holiness, about fidelity to God, about coming back to the, the goodness and the righteousness of the kingdom. The, the, the Pharisees saw this and they went, there's something incongruous in our mind here. Jesus, holy, calling people to holiness, is eating with people who are decidedly unholy. And he seems wholly unconcerned with it. He's not raining fire. He's not pointing fingers. He's just eating with them. What's he doing? Frankly, these were just people he wasn't supposed to eat with. Now, I don't know why they asked the disciples and not Jesus, right? I I think that's called triangling. Like you you ask somebody else instead of the person. Anyway, uh, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe they were hoping just that they had an answer and they didn't want to tangle with Jesus because Jesus, you know, when the Pharisees and Jesus got into it, it generally turned into a thing. But Jesus overhears, and he comes up, and he says, it's not the well who need a doctor, it's the sick. Right, right, people who are, who are doing well, who have no problems, people who are, who are uh, healthy don't need a doctor. They don't, they don't need someone to attend to them. Now, preventative medicine is important. Please, I just want you to all know that. Okay. But we get what Jesus is saying, Right? That, that it's not the people who are healthy who are in most urgent need of the doctor. Like, you go to the emergency room not because you're healthy. Like, I don't go over there for a checkup. Right? I go there when I bash my head on an electrical panel and I'm bleeding profusely. It happened. Right? That's why. And I'm glad those doctors in the ER are there for when I cut my scalp open so that they can staple me together. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, Jesus says. Obviously, Jesus isn't really giving like medical advice. He's, he's beginning to describe how he views his own ministry, right? He is not a dispenser of holiness to holy people. He is a doctor who has come to bring healing. He is a physician who has come to bring healing. And, and those who are righteous, or I would probably say in Jesus' context, those who think they are righteous don't need a doctor. They don't need a savior. The saved don't need a savior, maybe a way of putting it. And so he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I like that Jesus doesn't explain it because he told them to go learn what it meant. 
Do some work, he says. What does it mean that God wants mercy and not sacrifice? What does it mean in this context he might be asking them to consider that, that, that what God wants is mercy for, for those who need mercy? But he's not looking for big displays. He just desires to give mercy to those who need it. But then Jesus says, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. There happens to be this wonderful thing that sinners tend to know they're sinners, and it's those of us who think we're righteous that really get in trouble. Those who think we have no sin generally get in trouble. Because sometimes we forget that we are sinners in desperate need of God's grace. That's a different sermon. Jesus encourages those who have questioned him why he's hanging out with those people to go think about the nature and the character of God. I desire mercy, not sacrifices from Hosea. In God pleading with the people through the prophet. So he says, go and learn what that means. My job is to seek and save the lost, he will say elsewhere. My job, he says, is to call sinners in the loving embrace of God. Where else would I be is what he seems to be saying. He says, if my job is the sick, if my job is those who who need grace, why would I not be with people who need grace? He says. Pharisees don't answer at that particular point. And then there's some other stuff that goes on in between the two texts that I read this morning. But but really, this is part of a larger narrative where, where the next thing that happens is Jesus is there with his disciples and talking to his disciples about kind of all these things. And, and, and someone comes up to Jesus, speaking of sick people, a leader, it says, um, of the synagogue or, or a ruler, as our, our text put it today, comes to Jesus. Now, Now, again, context is important. When a ruler comes and says they need something, when someone important comes and says they need something, it would be expected that Jesus would go. Right? So if you were a healer in the first century and someone of influence, of power came and said, hey, come to my house and do this thing, in general, you would go because that's what you did. They were important people and you catered to important people. Now, the request that this man has is a little bit more unusual. He doesn't say, come to my house and heal my daughter. He comes to Jesus and he says, come to my house because my daughter has just died. And I know that you are, of all things, a healer. Right? In, in, in all the realm of this, this man's experience and everything that he has seen, he has seen that in Jesus is someone who not only can heal the sick, but can raise the dead. And so he comes to Jesus. And, and this is an act of profound faith, Right? To come to Jesus and to say, I believe you can do this. I believe you can raise her. I believe that you could just speak the word and touch her and she will be raised to new life. Again, I just want to note that probably in that, in that context in the first century, Jesus would be expected to go. It's not unusual that he would go and try to grant that request. This is a powerful man. Then as now, people catered to powerful people. When a powerful person called, you were expected to go and do. It's not really much different in today's day. And so Jesus goes. And they're walking through the crowds. It's a very interesting story. This is a, this is a story within a story within a story. I mean, it's like an inception story here that's going on. Some of you get that. Some of you don't. It's okay. And, and, and as Jesus is going along... 
as he's walking through the crowds, we get this other story. There's a woman. Now, this woman cuts a very, very different kind of character cloth than, than the ruler. Right? The ruler of the synagogue, think about it, everyone knows him. He's dignified. When he walks through a crowd, you know it. Right? If, if you're in a small town and a leader of the synagogue is around, right, you know who that is. You give them deference. You watch them and you make way for them. Right? In a crowd, you know who they are and they would bring him to Jesus. But, but now Jesus is going through the crowds. His disciples are in tow. And, and we, we have this narrated in, in Luke as well. And it says that Jesus, lots of people were touching him. They were jostling. There was just all sorts of stuff going on. But, but in the crowd, there was someone who was unseen. Unseen by, by most of the crowd, unseen by probably anybody around Jesus, and, and, and really until something happens, unseen by Jesus as well. It's a woman, it says, who has been dealing with bleeding. We're not told the context of that, how, what, why, for 12 years. We just know it's a malady she's had, it is chronic, and it is bad because that would have made her unclean. Right? Not in need of a bath, but unclean, like ritually unclean, which means she could not worship in the temple. She could not worship in the synagogue. She could not technically touch anybody else because she would, by her uncleanliness, ritually speaking, make them unclean. So she is an outsider of outsiders, right? 12 years, sort of imagine that, right? If you're this person and you're ritually unclean, like we know that when people are sick, it like there's care when they're initially diagnosed, but that seems to go away as the time stretches on. As the days, weeks, months, years go by. Now it's been 12 years she's been dealing with this. No one expects her to be healed, and she certainly up until this point doesn't seem to. We could imagine the doctor's visits and the consultations and all the stuff that went on. But this woman has heard about Jesus. And somehow she learns that Jesus is going from point A to point B on this particular day. I don't know, maybe she's in the crowd, maybe she's at the edge of the crowd, and she sees Jesus. And she thinks to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his cloak, I will be healed. I don't know why she doesn't think she could ask Jesus. There's lots of reasons behind that. A, she is ritually unclean. She's a woman. Maybe someone has told her she's not worthy of the Savior's time. Maybe she has told herself she's not worthy of the Savior's time. She just wants to be close. She, she, she doesn't want to bother him. She, she doesn't want to risk rejection. I, I'm not sure. I don't know why. We just know that, that she looks at it and says, he won't listen to me or I can't get to him if I take the frontal approach. And so she goes for a gorilla tactic. Jesus is walking along and she just kind of reaches out. and That was supposed to be animated. Sorry, it didn't work. She just reaches out and touches him. Touches his cloak. And we're told here and elsewhere that as she does so, she is healed. Immediately, it says she's healed. She touches the cloak and is healed. At least the bleeding stops. But the remarkable part about this is that Jesus somehow knows. In Matthew, we're not told how Jesus knows. Maybe he glanced it out of the corner of his eye. In Luke, it says that he felt the power go out from him. I don't know what that's like, but that's what it says in Luke. Somehow Jesus knows. 
he, he knows when his presence has, has done this thing that is a marker of the kingdom of God and brings healing to the world, right? He just knows, and so he turns and he looks at, at, at her. And he says this, woman, your faith has made you well. I suspect Jesus could have just kept walking. I mean, Jesus is on a mission, right? He's got business to do. It's, it's not like Jesus is just wandering through the crowds. It's not like Jesus is just kind of like meandering, taking in a stroll. Like he's on his way to do work. He's on his way to, to well, as it turns out, to raise somebody from the dead. And he could have just said, okay, someone touched me. They've probably melted into the crowd. Good, good on them. Faith made well. But, but he takes the time to stop and to acknowledge the woman. Because there are a couple of factors in place. Technically, she made him unclean by touching him. Technically. But Jesus stops and he acknowledges her. This woman who didn't think for whatever reason that approaching Jesus directly would get the response she wanted or needed. Perhaps because she just didn't think she'd be seen. Jesus stops, he acknowledges her, and he commends her faith. Not, why did you touch me? Not, don't touch me. Not, you could have just asked, right? None of that. None of the kind of snarky stuff some of us might say in that instance. He looks at her, acknowledges her humanity, and pronounces healing upon her by virtue of her faith in this instance. Jesus sees her when she didn't think she'd be seen or didn't want to be seen, Jesus chooses to see this person who either she didn't think was worthy of his time or others might not think was worthy of his time. Jesus says, I've come for those who are sick that they may be made well. And he demonstrates it right here. She is made well, and he sees her, restores her, and commends her for her action, for her faith. But lest we forget, Jesus is on a mission, right? He's already on his way somewhere else. And so that Matthew kind of just, that scene fades into the background, and Jesus arrives at the house of the leader of the, fair, of the, leader of the synagogue. And what Jesus finds when he gets there is sort of a fixture, it's especially probably in higher class homes, right, of, of sort of the mourning process in, as it's ongoing, right? So, so what probably you do, especially for people who are more well-off, I'm not sure about the lower classes, but this guy's well-off. He's a leader in the synagogue. He's well-known. And so you, when someone dies, you hire professional mourners, right? They might play the flute. They might play a band. They might walk along, right, with the casket, whatever it might be, right? But, but there are people who come and they, and they make this sort of public mourning, and, and this is their job. I mentioned that for a couple of reasons. A, is they're probably not family members. B, is they're people who know death when they see it. Right? And so Jesus walks up and there's all these people and there's wailing and there's flutes playing and there's this, just this funeral stuff going on. And Jesus walks into the midst of it and says, hold up. What are you guys having a funeral for? And they're thinking, well, dead person, that's what you do. And Jesus says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. These people know a dead body when they see one. 
right? I mean, I mean, we might look at back at 2,000 years ago and say, well, they're medical science, coma or whatever. They know death when they see it. It's their job. They're around it. Jesus is walking into their professional space and saying, yeah, you read this one wrong. And so they do what we would do if someone did that to us. We, they laugh at him. Right? Yeah, we know a dead person. They don't need a physician. They need an undertaker. So they laugh at him. Jesus is unperturbed, unfazed, and just says, well, just go outside then, right? And he pushes them all outside. And it says that he walks into the room, and he takes the girl by the hand, and he says, get up. And lo and behold, the great physician is also the great resurrector of the dead. She gets up. She's well. She's restored to her parents. I would encourage you to read this in Luke as well. Luke gives a little more detail that I just love, but I'm not going to preach that text today. I could, but I'm not going to. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach another sermon. She's restored to life. And as you can imagine, word about this spread. Spread throughout the land. Jesus the healer. Jesus the resurrector of the dead. Jesus' fame grows. We'll, we'll talk next week about how these things are marks of the coming kingdom of God. People begin to talk and to wonder. But, but what I find fascinating about this scripture is going back to kind of that dinner and that response to the Pharisees. Right? It's not the healthy new doctor, but the sick. And Jesus demonstrates in these texts that, that his mission is to those who are sick, those who need the touch, those who need his presence, and those, quite frankly, who recognize their need of his presence. Right, we expect Jesus to go along with this leader of the synagogue. Like, it's not terribly unusual that Jesus would heal in that instance, right? For, for any healer would do the same thing. What is most remarkable, at least to me about this text, is that as Jesus goes along, he, he doesn't just say, I, I heal the people who can pay me, who can give me honor and glory, who can increase my stature in the community. But Jesus takes the time, and as he's walking through that crowd, not only does healing happen when she touches his garment, but Jesus stops. He acknowledges and understands. What I like about the Luke text, so I'm going to preach it just a little bit today, is Jesus is walking along, and Luke puts us in the context of a little girl being sick and not dead. So, So just think about this a little bit. If you're the dad and your kid is sick, if you've ever had a kid who's sick, Right? And, and you need to take them to the doctor. You go to the doctor. You don't stop. Red lights are iffy, right? They're just pink, maybe. Um, stop signs, right? We can roll through that. That's okay. We'll try to keep everyone else safe, but my kid needs to go to the doctor. So imagine you're that parent and you ask Jesus to come along with you and you're influential and you're rich. And Jesus stops to talk to someone else who's been sick for 12 years. They don't need a doctor right away. The kid at home does. So what I love about this text is, at least in my mind, is it brings me back to this idea that, that, that Jesus isn't just about like, you know, I just heal the people who are influential or who can pay me or, or the most important folks, right? Because certainly if you have to make a choice, who do you heal? Well, you, the important guy, because he can, you know, he can fill the coffers. He can, he can tell the others about me. He can, he can make sure that my name is great in the nations. And, and this woman over here, well, she, she got nobody. It's been 12 years. She'll be fine. She can wait. Right, that's, that is the calculus of the, of the sort of utilitarian argument there. But Jesus doesn't make utilitarian arguments. 
Jesus says, it's the sick who need a doctor, and I am here for the sick. And so Jesus doesn't just look to the inside, to the powerful, to the rich. He also sees on the margins. In fact, he makes a point to look on the margins. He makes a point to stop and heal someone who, it could be said by others, wasn't worth his time. I think there are plenty of people who are in Jesus' time, or who are in our time for that matter, who said that woman, in comparison, is not worth Jesus' time. Certainly not to stop and to acknowledge, right? But Jesus chooses to stop. He chooses to see. He chooses to engage her in conversation. Again, I'm trying not to preach Luke, but in Luke, he stops and he says, who did it? Who touched me? And you got to be thinking, like, does it matter? My kid's sick. But Jesus chooses to stop and investigate this thing. I felt the power go out for me. Well, Jesus, people are just touching you. It happens. But Jesus chooses to stop and to see someone who was probably in that crowd unseen. Because if she had been seen, people wouldn't be around her. They knew what was going on. They wouldn't have been around her. Because she was sick. She was unclean. She was supposed to stay on the margins. But Jesus sees her. And in all of this, what I am so like amazed by is that Jesus isn't afraid of the contamination of the sick. Right, whether it is ritual contamination, whether it's like physical contamination, right? What does Jesus do? He touches people who have leprosy. That's how you get leprosy. But Jesus isn't afraid of being contaminated. Jesus touches he people, lepers would be in there who would be considered unclean, but Jesus is not afraid of contamination. People who are sinners, Jesus is not afraid that, that he's going to be contaminated by their sin, but, but he is what he is, the great physician, the healer, the righteous one, the one who comes to call sinners to repentance, the one who has come to show the love of God to the world. He's not afraid that they're going to contaminate him. He says, watch out and see what I do there. Jesus isn't you know, like hiding in a corner spraying disinfectant. Right, sometimes that's, that's, that's how we see some of the folks in the, in the scriptures kind of react to, to sinners, to, to tax collectors, right? When they get well, they can come in. But Jesus takes a completely different tactic. He says, there may be sickness out there, but watch what happens when I walk into that. I am not made sick, they are made well. I am not made unclean, they are made holy. Jesus goes to where the other people wouldn't. Perhaps where they even shouldn't have gone. And says, look what I can do. For the kingdom of God, he says, is breaking into your midst. And this is what the kingdom of God is. It is wholeness and healing and forgiveness. It is God drawing all people back to God's own self. not just in the center where the powerful are. But the gospel says over and over is good news to the poor, to the outcast, to the sick, to the hurting, to the dying. For Jesus has come to call those who are sick. And if any of us are honest with ourselves, we were those who were called and we need to be made well. To be made whole. In Christ's name. 
Now, some of us haven't done the kind of stuff that puts us on the margins. Some of us have been privileged to not have to live in the margins. I would venture to say, and I hope you would agree with me, that that doesn't mean we don't need the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God. For as Paul says, God demonstrates God's love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ yet died for us. He went out of his way to find us. We were sheep who had gone astray. And he came and found us. Even when we didn't care, we didn't know, and spit in his eye. Jesus isn't afraid of contamination. Jesus goes to the poor and to the lonely and to the sick and to the lost. And brings life. Values them as people eats with them, sits down with them, has parties with them. Jesus got in trouble with that too, right? He came like he was a party and people got mad. Jesus, why are you celebrating? Because I'm in the world, right? Why shouldn't we celebrate? Jesus goes to where the sick are and in him they find life. They find healing. They find wholeness. We are people who have been and experienced, at least I hope in this room you have experienced that touch from God. Healing. Perhaps you've been on the margins and have felt what it's like for for him to see you and to know you and to say, I love you, welcome home. We have been a recipient of that healing and that grace. But here's something that comes along with being recipients of his grace. The grace that we have received, we are also called to give. Now, we aren't Jesus. I hope we can all agree on that. We are no one savior. I hope we can agree on that. But we are called to be agents of God's healing in our world. We are called to go where sick people are. I put that in quotations because it's the people we think are sick, right? But we're called to go to the margins. We're called to be with. We're, We're called to hang out with people who aren't like us, who don't think like us and who don't agree with us because we have been given the love of God and a message to share and that is the love of God poured out in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We have the ministry that Jesus had. Again, I just want to point out that we are not Jesus, and yet we are sent to do the work of Jesus in the world. That's next week's sermon, so I'm not going to get too much on that. But if Jesus went to the margins, we're called to go to the margins. If, if Jesus were, was to see the people who in our world are, 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 are unseen, then that's our job. If Jesus' job is to go wherever sick people are, whether they're in a rich person's house or a poor person's house, we are called to go there and to be agents of God's healing and reconciliation in the world so that the message of God might be known in us and through us. Not so that we can be great and wonderful people. Not so that we can get all the accolades and praise, 
not so that we can put it on our resume. (laughs) We are called to the margins, to the lost, to the poor. To speak of the love of Christ to the world, wherever quote-unquote sick people are. And we go not as the righteous ones, but we go as those who have experienced for ourselves the grace of God and desire that others might know it as well. We have experienced grace and forgiveness, and we want others to know that as well. We have experienced healing, physical, emotional, spiritual. Some of you have testimonies that blow my mind because God has brought healing into your lives in ways that I would never have been able to comprehend. And that is a gift that you can share with others. We are called to the ministry of healing just as we have been healed. Uh, The author Henry Nowen calls us wounded healers because we have received grace. We desire to give grace to others so that they too might know the love and grace of God. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. So we try to persuade people since we know what it means to fear the Lord. We are well known by God and I hope that your heart, in your heart we are known well known by you as well. We aren't trying to commend ourselves to you again. Instead, we are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you can answer those who take pride in superficial appearance and not as what is in the heart. Paul says, if we are crazy, it is for God's sake. If we are rational, it is for your sake. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. One died for the sake of all, therefore all died. He died for the sake of all so that those who are alive should not live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and who was raised. So from this point on, we won't recognize people by human standards, even though we used to even recognize Christ by human standards. This is not how we see him now. So then if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old things have gone away. Look, all things have become new. All these new things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not by counting people's sins against them. He trusted us with this message of reconciliations. So we are ambassadors who represent Christ God is negotiating with you through us. We beg you as Christ's representatives to be reconciled to God. God caused the one who didn't know sin to be sin for our sake, that through him we could become the righteousness of God. So we are ambassadors who represent Christ. We are agents of God's healing His power doesn't reside in us. It's from him. And yet he has called us to this ministry. He has called us to be healed in his name that we might also go out and proclaim healing in his name. We are a people of profound faith. We believe, right, that that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That is what we believe. That is in our creeds. That, That is our understanding. That is the foundation at least of who we are as the church. And that in so doing, God has reconciled the whirling to himself. And if we believe Christ is raised from the dead, what is impossible? 
Here's a hint. We sang it early. Nothing is impossible. If we believe in a God who brings the dead back to life, is there anything that is impossible? And we are called to be messengers of that grace. That healing is found in his name. We are to proclaim it to those who are near and to those who are far off. We are to proclaim it to the world. Insiders, outsiders, nearsiders, margins everywhere. That the world might be reconciled to Christ. The world might know God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Worship team is going to come back up and we're going to sing this final song. We believe God is healer. That, that's why we come. Because he has healed us. He has healed us spiritually. Some of us, he has healed us very, very physically. And we are here because he has called us and said, I am making all things new. And we come to proclaim to the world that God is making all things new in Christ. That he is reconciling the world to himself. That he has come to make us whole, body, soul, and mind. And so may this last song for us be a declaration of faith in the God who is making all things.